Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Like intellectual bowerbirds, we aim to collect shiny little objects of knowledge that we think can help build better humans. G'day everyone and welcome back to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I am standing next to Tim Curtis. Present. Good to see you. Good turnout. Bit of a turnout. And I am Ben Pronk and we are joined today by Dr. Robert Barber. Dr. Rob Barber, who I met on my selection course. He was the SAS doctor at the time, a beret qualified doctor, but an interesting journey. A guy who was born in Africa. I'm just hanging to make the joke about you meeting the doctor on selection <laughs> yeah, call, but we'll, right. we'll leave that. <laughs> I don't remember reporting to him with any <laughs> medical condition, but <laughs> yeah. uh, he, he, might, he might beg to differ having pulled my medical file, but started life in Africa and at the other end of, of the bookshelf, he's bookended himself back in Africa, but the middle part is uh, comes and studies medicine in Australia, joins the army naturally via the special forces community and then back out through Papua New Guinea into Africa, where he's found his passion in conservation, anti-poaching and community development. Yeah, I mean, we started this podcast looking for people who are leading lives less ordinary, and Rob's certainly doing that. Um, Some fascinating reflections on his childhood, Mm -hmm. on his sort of journey through a couple of hard things, med school and essay selection. But interestingly, in, in terms of what he's doing now, you know, obviously well-qualified individual, a um, lot of different options laid out to him, and, and he's chosen a pretty noble one, I reckon. He has, and we'll explore all of those things and what Rob does for him and some of his philosophies on what you should do for you in this episode. Yeah, and along the way, we might see if we can eke out some lessons for the rest of us and maybe even try and find out what his power song is. Mm. Let's get on with the show. Well, welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis, as always, with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Ben. How are you? Streaming live from Kenya. I'm well, by the way. Uh, Dr. Rob Barber, all the way from Tanzania. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Ben. Nice to see you guys. Now, we met, I reckon, in 1995 or 96, where this guy who was born in Kenya somehow made his way out to Australia to be not just a doctor, but a special forces doctor with the SAS regiment. And then in between us meeting and now, you've gone back to Africa in a range of different guises. You're leading expeditions. You've been a safari lodge managing director. You're sitting on boards of organisations that are trying to preserve wildlife. There's so much to unpack, Rob, and looking forward to doing that. But perhaps the best place to start is how was growing up in Kenya, one of my favourite countries in the world? Yeah, no, well, th- firstly, thanks for having me uh, on your show. I'm, I'm very privileged to be here. I very much enjoy what you guys are doing. So um, I hope people enjoy this particular story. Um, yeah, my, my folks were farmers in Kenya, Tim. Um, 
my father went out uh, well, my mum was born there, and my grandmother on my mum's side in, in on uh, was also born in Kenya. Mm -hmm. um, my father was went there as a fourteen year old. Interestingly enough, um, he, he my grandfather went there to judge cattle at an agricultural show in nineteen fifty. Liked the place, decided to buy some land. So my dad, as a fourteen year old, went out with the cows on the ship by himself. Wow. Um, from from the UK through the Suez Canal, landed at Mombasa, the port mm. in Kenya. Mm -hmm. He had one address for the farm manager upcountry, which is actually uh, under a beautiful volcano called Mount Elgin on the border with Uganda. Uh, very volcanic, very rich farming community. So dad took the cows up there on the train, was living on milk and uh, his wit as a 14-year-old. <laughs> um, and Granny and Gramps decided to... Uh, drive a Mark 7 Jag across the Sahara from <laughs> from the UK to Kenya in 1953 to join him. Um, they <laughs> we um in an so, earlier show we we sort of talked about helicopter parenting and I'm I'm probably a little bad at it and you know but there's a generational thing here isn't there? Yeah. So just back up a second. A 14 year old kid on a yeah. a ship with a bunch of cattle. Instructions being, yeah. what will I eat, Mum and Dad? Well, milk the bloody cows, you idiot. And we, so that's pretty much it. Pretty much it. Take them to this guy uh, in this town in Kenya. Uh, have fun. <laughs> that's right. Where, where is that? Just look it up yeah. in Google Maps. No, hang on. So, yeah, that's <laughs> exactly, pretty impressive. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, why I tell that story and then Granny and Gramps, you know, driving across the Hara in a Mark 7 Jaguar, which <laughs> looks like a battleship these days. It's like a three-ton motor uh, with cedar dash panels and leather seats is, um, you know, I've always grown up in an environment where people have just said, just do it, you know, get on with it. Uh, you know, life is for living. The bigger your dream, the bigger your imagination, the more fun you're going to have. Mm. So it kind of, it really stuck with me, that theme f life. Uh, and also, obviously, when your parents uh, do those kinds of things at their age, you don't have a lot of sympathy <laughs> around you for people who are not prepared to get off their their bats and uh, and and do things, so um, it kind of set the stage for the way I tried to live my life. To be honest, but it's a really interesting story because um, I remember clearly not understanding what my grand and gramps did in that particular trip, and so I set my grandma down when she was I don't know she must have been ninety at the time and asked her to tell me it, and she poured over a map and her memory was phenomenal. I mean, she drove they they landed that that car in Algeria, drove south through Algeria through all those what are effectively badlands these days because of insecurity through yeah. Mali and Niger into Central African Republic. They broke something in the car in their Central African Republic and my uncle Huey had to go back to the UK to find the parts, which took four months. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a crazy story. But she was able to – I asked her, I said to Gran, you need to write this in a journal – this is crazy. You know, you, you look at your grandmother as a little grey-haired old lady and you, we forget the types of lives that they they potentially led. So she wrote a journal and instantly she also had an 8 millimeter footage. She shot this incredible 8 millimeter footage. So I've got this fantastic record. But that's how they started. So my father ended up uh, being a farmer in Kenya. So I, as a child, was born there um, in this place called Kitali uh, on, the, on the slopes of Mount Elgin. And, um, you know, as a as a young kid, it's a pretty idyllic 
lifestyle to be honest you're uh you're in africa it's an incredibly beautiful climate not unlike western australia where i eventually ended up mm-hmm. um and we had a lot of freedom uh to do the things that we wanted and of course my parents took me on trips uh, all over kenya and east africa on safari and into the wild areas and camping and and enjoying things and and to the wonderful coastline that that part of the world has. Did they trade so up? up? Did they trade up in those journeys from the Mark Seven Jaguar to something with a bit more four by four capability? <laughs> well, actually, interestingly enough, we did a lot of it in a VW Beetle um, <laughs> in the early days. So you know, and and of course, yeah, we had other vehicles, and my dad uh, taught himself to fly, and, and eventually we used airplanes as well to get around. So again. You know, um, they they thought they thought big, um, and so we had some wonderful adventures uh, by plane, by by car, by foot, um, and I, it just gave me a very uh, strong passion for the natural world and for being active and out in it. Um, so I was I was we were there until I was uh, just before my tenth birthday, and it was well after. Sorry, I've got to ask, that that area, Katale, Eldoret, that Rift Valley area, that is ground zero for distance running. I've I've gotten into sort of marathon more more recently. (laughs) That is the epicentre of the world's best runners. Did any of that rub off on you? Was that part of the culture there? Because it's only been a couple of generations that that's really started to to emerge as as a sort of distance powerhouse. As growing up as a kid, no, there was you know there was some very very good Kenyan runners at that stage. Mm-hmm. I, I can remember a guy called Kit Kano. Kit which Kano, was, yeah, he was one, the first. Yeah, yeah, he was one of the very early guys that came from that particular area around Eldoret. Mm-hmm. Um, it, unfortunately, it didn't rub off on me. I mean, I went to school <laughs> at nine thousand feet, uh, boarding school, um, so I should have I should have uh, I should have got some rub off, but uh, sadly not. Unfortunately, but no, um, no it's not. I cut you off, but you you were ten years old in in the the Katala yeah. region. So uh, you know it was well after independence, but there was some you know it it wasn't it wasn't looking pretty for the future of Kenya in terms of uh, commerce, and there was a a scheme. Uh, the government was desperate to buy back farms from the large landowners and give it back to supposedly the general population. Um, and so they set up a scheme. At that stage, you couldn't move foreign currency out of Kenya um, outside. But they, as an incentive, they suggested that if if you sold your assets, then you could. And um, my my parents were basically looking for the best possible future for myself and my two younger sisters. So they did a world trip. They went back to the UK. They went to Canada, the US. They went to Argentina. They they went to New Zealand, and they came to Australia. And in 1974, they thought Australia was the place to be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we made the decision to to move to Australia. They um, we had a couple of contacts in Perth, Western Australia, and so uh, literally in those days, pretty much if you were TB negative on your X-ray and your tests, um, and you had the the means, uh, you could land. So we packed everything in a box and and settled in Australia. So that's that's how we came to Western Australia. And just before and, uh, you we know, leave, that stage, sorry, yeah, Rob, just ahead. before we leave Kenya fully, we um, 
have the, the real privilege of working with a number of um, agricultural clients. One in particular, um, Charlie and Owen, g'day to you. I, I remember them talking recently about wedgetail eagles being a bit of an issue for some of their young um, livestock. What sort of things yeah. were keeping your livestock on their, their toes in, in Kenya? Well, at, in those days, it's quite interesting because I remember very clearly on the farm um, seeing uh, Rothschilds, giraffes, uh, different types of antelope, and, and occasionally a buffalo would come off Mount Elgin, where, which was at that time a national park, of, mm-hmm. a beautiful forest national park, quite a fun mountain to climb, actually. And um, I do remember uh, my grandmother showing me the skin of a cheetah that was killed by farm workers that had obviously strayed onto the farm. Right. Um, so there, so we were very close to wildlife areas. And in the early 70s, Kenya didn't have the population that it now has. Um, and so there was still plenty of wildlife outside of protected areas. Mm-hmm. And you could go anywhere. One of my favorite games going to the coast on holiday from the farm driving was counting elephants yeah, yeah. in Australia. They cricket with the cars going past if you see a particular type of car, but we were counting elephants. So those days, sadly, you know, they're passing as the population increases, uh, wild, wildlife and wildlife habitat is being squeezed a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So from the farm in Kenya, the 10-year-old arrives in the metro centre of Perth, Western Australia. How was the adjustment for the family, for you and your two sisters to come from an African yeah. farm to a metropolitan centre. Yeah. Yeah. So we, it, it's, it, I found it really particularly tough to be honest, Tim. Um, you know, I obviously had a friend group, I had a way of life that I was really enjoying. We were excited to come to Australia, but it was significantly different. So my, my folks, we, we actually rented a house in Gooseberry Hill. Uh, hmm. I went to, uh, I joined Gooseberry Hill primary school. Probably is a bit of a rat bag from the bush, I think. Um, uh, so, but I missed Africa terribly. I found it's really interesting. I mean, Gooseberry Hill was at that stage just developing and there was a lot of bush around. You know, there's this fantastic forest up there in the hills there behind Perth. Um, and I used to spend a lot of time walking in the bush. And I, at that, at, at, at my first impressions were that it was dead. It was like uh, I, I didn't see any large mammals. Uh, anything that I saw was was small. I, you know, it was rare to see a snake, if, even if you wanted to. Um, there was there was sort of blue tongued goannas and things, um, and the bush felt for me very dry and arid. It's funny because as I developed in Australia, obviously I developed a huge passion for the Australian bush. You know, mm. and, and in fact, my my dad wanted to continue farming, so he was scouting out as he was working as a brickies labourer. Um, to earn money as we scouted out for a farm. And he eventually bought a farm at a place called Boyer Brook, south mm. of Perth. Beautiful sort of uh, um, sheep and, and crop growing area with a relatively high rainfall, which he, he was looking for, uh, and and close to the coast, Bunbury and, and places. So we bought a farm in Boyer Brook and we moved south not long after being in Gooseberry Hill. I think it was five or six months. <laughs> and I, I started primary school in, in Boyer Brook Primary School. And I again, I would spend a lot of time in the bush walking. And I had an inspired teacher at that stage who introduced me to Australian ground orchids, of all things. Hmm. And I just became passionate about these incredible plants and would spend a lot of time in the bush looking for the various species, learning them by heart, pressing them, 
and yeah, it was a strange habit for a young boy from <laughs> from uh, from the bush. But for me, it was very natural to spend time looking at things in the bush, and I needed something. I was really, really homesick for Africa, mm. and it would you know would crop up in my schoolwork. I'd write about it, I'd read about it, I'd tell people about it, and I was kind of relatively exotic so for for me it was one way of gaining uh friends because i was a little bit different in, in terms of my background than the usual country australian people mm. um i'd been a rugby player i started to learn to play aussie rules football and i seemed to be pretty good at that because i was relatively aggressive <laughs> and um, so yeah i i slowly began to integrate and you know by the time i went to school in perth high school in perth um you know, I was an Australian. Um, I'd lost my Kenyan accent, and I was fully committed to Australia and the Australian dream. I, you know, I had a fond memory of my childhood, but you know, all my dreams and thoughts and and ideas were going to progress in Australia. Mm. Um, so, you know, when when I I had a, it, it was an interesting moment actually because I remember my dad as a, we were on the farm, uh, we were chasing sheep through you know on motorcycles and my dad asked me you know what are you going to do when you finish and um i said well i want to come farming and i love the farm and he says well look i'm really i'm happy for that to happen that's that's an awesome goal uh but you know i'd, I'd really like you to go away and do something first you know, one of my big regrets was that i never got a chance to finish school because he was farming in mm -hmm. kenya uh, you know, he so he really regretted that. He says, Rob, you know, just go away and do something else, you know, go and go traveling, go whatever. But by the way, when you finish high school, financially, you're on your own, right? So, <laughs> and, and, and you know, I was okay with that, you know, mm. it was just good to know it, but I was totally okay with it. Well, it's better um, than a, um, it, a ship full of cows and you know, yeah, that, that's that right. kind of... Well, also financially <laughs> still on your yeah. own. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that, that particular message actually shaped a bunch of stuff that happened subsequently, obviously, right? Mm. Um, you know, in those days, we were lucky enough that a university education was relatively free other than your living expenses. Um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do and I was... You know, I was a pretty good rugby player at school, and um, my rugby coach was a, uh, a a fantastic gentleman who was sort of a very good mentor to me, Professor Alan Morton, who was a professor of human movement at the University of Western Australia. He used to play on the wing for the Wallabies in the early days. A super super bloke, and my school uh, and my school uh, coach. So I asked them, and and he, Prof Morton said, "Look, how are you doing at school?" And I said, "Well, I'm doing okay." He says, "Well." And I was thinking of doing something along the sports line because I was sports mad. Nobody wants to be at school at that age. Hmm. And um, and uh, so I was thinking about human movement or, you know, phys ed or something like that. And he said, look, if you're if you get the grades, think about something like medicine, which allows which is very, very broad um, and, and allows you to to pick what you want to do later on when you find a passion for it, which was inspired advice to be honest um so i i didn't quite get the grades you know i was captain of school and so i was probably doing a bunch of other things that i should should have should have been concentrating on my grades i missed out by 
nothing to get into medical school the first time around. But I was committed to the cause. So I ended up going to uni and studying like crazy my first year at uni and getting in into second year medicine. Mm-hmm. At, um, at University of Western Australia? University of Western Australia, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, but, you know, I was I was in a bit of a conundrum because I had to fend for myself. So I was obviously working the summer holidays really hard to earn cash. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, working through university time in after hours to also earn. So, you know, I, I had a couple of hacks. I, I lived relatively cheaply at college at, in my first year of uni. And then in my second year, I became a boarding house master back at my school, Hale School in, in Perth, um, which obviously took care of my living expenses. Um, and then I worked this long summer holidays, which worked pretty well for me. So different kinds of jobs uh, on farms, um, shoveling wheat in the grain silos down south, being a security guard during the World Windsurfing Championships, you know, a bunch of different things. But as medicine progressed, I found it harder and harder to find the time to earn. And so, you know, uh, you, 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 at, at that early age, you're pushed into certain ideas. And that's when the idea of the military popped up, uh, some mutual friends of mine, um, who were already in the military, um, said, Hey, look, you know, we're, we're, we're doing return of service obligation duties, uh, we've enlisted. And, uh, you know, that if you're finding it hard, they're going to pay you. And then you, you, you go into the military afterwards. So I thought I thought about that for a while. I thought, well, that's quite an interesting idea, actually. I hadn't actually thought of that. Um, uh, you may remember him, Tim. Um, it was Mark Little. Uh, I can't even remember what rank Mark is now, but he's a very, very established emergency physician in the sort of uh, crisis management emergency response now. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, Mark was already in the army. I went. I wanted to fly, so I went to see the Air Force officer at uh, down at. Uh, uh, um, at the Air Force Base, but you know, he was just a flabby, very unmotivated individual. Um, so I came down to see. You're uh, going to have to narrow then, that down if you're describing an Air Force officer. <laughs> 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 we'll, we'll tread carefully here. Not all Air Force officers yeah, yeah, are created yeah. the same. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I don't want to say too much in case I incriminate anybody, yeah, but you know, right. sadly. There's flabby motivated. army guys too. <laughs> Yeah, well, there were, but but I was inspired because I came down to Swanbourne, which was the closest military, full-time military base for us in Perth, and I was introduced to then Major Paul Alexander, who was the then RMO of the, of the regiment, and um, wonderful gentleman, um, and again, you know, he showed me around the base, introduced me to his work, and, you know, at that early stage in my medical career, and my potential military career, that was the job I wanted. Mm. So, you know, it's amazing what certain experiences can do to focus your mind and your attention and your efforts. So, so you know, I've, I finally finished my medical degree. I did my residencies in Perth in sort of various specialties that I thought would be valuable to me in, in my military career, you know, revolved around emergency medicine, orthopedics, psychology as it happens or psychiatry um and and uh i remember marching you know driving my vw beetle with my dog across the nullarbor 
and marching into one RTB Kapuka in my flip-flops into the adjutant's office. So. <laughs> Which is our recruit training centre in Australia. Yep. Correct, yeah, the recruit training centre. I wouldn't so imagine really that went down too well with the adjutant. I was going to say, you'd only do that once, wouldn't you? Exactly. He was, uh, he was brutal but, but kind, right? So um, <laughs> Brutal but uh, kind. So <laughs> he, uh, he was a whole lot more brutal than he was. Anyway, I, uh, he put me in a uniform. Of course, need, he, he sort of buddy paired me with some, uh, some, some captains there who have become lifelong friends and were really good to me in my first posting into the military. Introduced me to the adjutant whose first question was, can you play rugby? Um, and I obviously said yes. So I ended up, you know, playing for the Kapuka team in the local competition. And that really set up my friend group and and my love of the military and the army. You know, I couldn't believe after working crazy, crazy hours as a junior doctor that I could be outside slinging in, uh, yeah, an SLR, crawling through the mud and getting paid for it, right? So <laughs> it was just, for me, it was just heaven. I kind of felt like after... After being institutionalized at the age of six at boarding school, I actually felt like I was coming home. It was just, I just fitted, it fitted me like a glove and I just absolutely enjoyed and reveled in the the uniqueness that the military provides to, to people um, in terms of the camaraderie, the sense of purpose, the incredible training that people get. I, I can't speak highly enough. I mean, I know our unit in particular has gone through a rough time recently, but, you know, I can't speak highly enough of the, the men and women of the Australian Defence Force and the time it gave me uh, as, a, as, a, as a soldier. It was incredible. Well, why don't you just wait here at the bar while I go outside and go around the corner and get out of the car? so you you've you've finally found a uniform you're crawling through with a self loaded rifle of 7.62 millimeter variety through the mud and thinking this is wonderful but you started the journey a little west of the wire getting a teaser at the special air service regiment or the sas and something took yeah. you back there how did that transition go yeah. why did you want to go and serve in that unit and undertake the selection course yeah so yeah you know i i like to know about myself i think everybody likes the journey of self-discovery I like to push myself in different directions and see what I'm capable of. And, you know, and, and I think, you know, at that age, you want to be the best of the best with the best. You know, mm. it's just as simple as that. So for, from a military perspective, that was the place to be. And, of course, post-recruit post training battalion, you know, I needed some skills before I could get there, clearly, right? Um, yeah, as a, as a direct entry officer into the military, I was way behind my colleagues who had gone through you know, the the Defence Academy and ADFA and, and so forth. So infantry school or wherever they were. So I, I I needed some skills. So I would spend a lot of time with my colleagues trying to be better at my military skills. Um, I don't profess to be any good at all, but it was important for me to try and get as good as I could get. 
And so even when I was then posted to a, an infantry battalion, which was awesome, you know, I was in the right sort of environment to become, a, a, a you know, as best as I could be military-wise. I, I, uh, I buddy paired with people around me that I thought could lead me in the right direction, both as a soldier, as a gentleman, uh, as an officer, and as an athlete. Um, so I was playing a lot of rugby and, and getting fit with the, the right kind of people. I then, you know, I was lucky enough then to be posted to the Middle East on a post peacekeeping mission. So I only spent a year up in Townsville with the second, fourth battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. But, um, I, I went, I went to, uh, the Sinai, um, hmm. with the, um, MFO, uh, for what was effectively a one year posting, uh, as the, as a, as officer uh, that slotted into what what was a multinational medical unit um, and um, you know, I was there I was there for a short period but was eventually transferred in fact I met my wife there my wife Jackie was was serving with the Dutch federal police there the marriage say so we met actually in the Sinai um, and but uh, you know I ended up having to be posted through to the Western Sahara UN a United Nations peacekeeping mission when one of my colleagues in the medical corps was killed in a plane accident so I went there suddenly and spent my last six months of that year 1993 in um, in uh, in the Western Sahara came back on promotion to what was then the brigade area support unit in Townsville as uh, as the commander of a of a medical unit. Uh, and at that stage, I was pretty keen then to, to, I thought I was ready enough to do the special air service regiment, um, selection course. So I was aligning myself with my friends who had all been infantry officers. And a lot of them had already either done the selection course and been successful and were in the regiment, um, and had done a bunch of training with them and, and was starting to understand what was required. So... I, I on on leave in Perth one day I went and and um, asked for an appointment with the with the with this the CEO and 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 said look you know as a as a as a regimental medical officer I'd be very keen to work here what can I do to maximize my chances to get posted to the unit and he says well do the selection course and I said well okay and I and I I anticipated that to be the answer and I said well Okay, so you you'll support my application if I submit it. He said, "Of course." So I I submitted my application for the um, for the for the selection course, and of course, yeah, medical corps kind of kind of uh, we're not happy at that stage, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, so so medical corps when I submitted it actually declined my application. Um, and I wrote to I read I wrote to the CEO and said, "Look, I'm really sorry, sir, but I'm not going to be able to make this. So my, my application's been denied." And I think I don't know what happened after that, but pretty soon I got a I got a posting order into the unit. So mm. I'm not sure what happened. I can't, you know, maybe it was luck. Maybe uh, maybe the maybe the medical corps saw the potential for me probably to exit the system or whatever. <laughs> I don't know, but. But I uh, I felt that you know in the in the possibility that someone had uh, got over and above to give me the opportunity, there was no way in hell I was going to fail that course, hmm. right? So um, so I prepared as hard as I possibly could. Of course, 
I was lucky enough to know some people in the unit who told me what I needed to be able to do, who helped me with skills that were not my natural skills, navigation skills and some of the other things. Uh, Fitness-wise, I worked very, very hard and, you know, the rest is history. I, I managed to um, to get through and continue with my my tenure at the unit. So, and yeah, that's how it came I, about. I guess an interesting um, side note to that, it's not mandatory. Jump in here, Ben. It's not mandatory for the doctors, now plural, in the SAS regiment to undertake selection, but some do. Absolutely. And in fact, we're starting to get some ex-serving members who have done medicine afterwards come back in. There's been a couple of... Yeah. Of legends, both officer and NCO, who have done that. Yep, quite a few. Quite a few have yeah. served in the regiment yeah. as an operator or an officer, and then gone and done medicine after. And you were probably a bit of a, t- a trailblazer in that respect. Well, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm, I'm. I think it's fantastic that operators who'd served in the unit were able to get the opportunity to go and um, become doctors and potentially serve their country again. That's extraordinary. I, I can't imagine that path. That's that's just unbelievable. Mm, yeah, so really I head off to those guys. Um, you know, for me, it was it, it was obviously a personal journey I wanted to take. Uh, shoot, you learn a lot about yourself on that course, obviously. Some of it nice and some of it not so nice, but it's uh, it's incredibly, it's, a, it's definitely a growth journey. But I, it was more than that. I felt that, you know, if I was going to be serving in that unit, I needed to be validated in some way with those people that I'm going to be giving instructions to or ideas to or recommendations to or potentially Mm. impacting their career. So I took it very seriously that I needed some credibility. Um, You know, I wasn't I wasn't from an infantry background or, you know, an armed background. So I was I had to I had to look at it. You know, I had to push uh, to, to try and develop that credibility and it's a it's a it's a it's a job I took very very seriously. You have an enormous amount of responsibility, as you guys all know. You know, operators um, often get sick, they get injured, and um, they they push through. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's not in their the in their best interest or or the military's best interest. Mm. And you, you have some very tough decisions to make. So I took that job very, very seriously. And I had some good people around me who were, you know, senior uh, reservist medical officers who were very supportive when we were deployed or on or on, on training, uh, training exercises away that took care of business and gave me very, very good advice on how to manage that situation. So, but it was an incredible time for me in my life. I, um, I found it incredibly rewarding to be around those kinds of people. I remember very clearly meeting Tim, you know, uh, on on his course. Um, that was when we first met. I think you would have met him were... at the sick bay, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you have rocked <laughs> yeah, up with right. some implausible feigned injury and oh, <laughs> a blister, yeah, he, doctor? I can't was, keep going because of this life-threatening blister. <laughs> He was crying about something. I can't <laughs> yeah, that rings. I gave him a cuddle. <laughs> I, I swapped Brazard. The names got mixed up, mixed up, and I got selected. You ripper. Yeah. No, congrats, man. No. Yeah. No. It's it's an awesome it's an awesome uh, professional experience, and I I and in 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 a lot of respects that that few years in my military career put me in an environment where I was uh, had a skill set, obviously, that uh, led to all the other things that followed. Mm. So I'm incredibly grateful to to the Australian military and my peers and my colleagues and everybody that 
that uh, shepherded me through that experience. It, it was it was one of the highlights of my life. And, you know, lowlights as well. We had some horrible things happen, you know, obviously at, at the time. Um, I was there, I was in the unit when when the Black Hawk crash happened in 96. So, so it was terrible. I never deployed uh, on operations uh, like you guys have. Um, but, you know, incredible experience for me. Mm. Um, and uh, I have no regrets. And, you know, everything that followed, I, I, I pay a big debt to the military in my time uh, for the experience and the way I look at look at things now but of course you did a whole bunch of hard work to get to that point both in terms of the military uh, let alone the SA selection let alone the fact you'd done medicine prior to that you've, you've outlined in our discussion so far a number of these hard things that you've done and and not just single moment but you know chronic periods of, of intense hard work and focus what what tools do you use or did you use or do you still use to keep focus and to keep determination on one of these really big sort of goals that that requires that prolonged um, uh, dedication and, and prolonged hard work. Yeah, what a great question, Ben. Um, you know, I actually don't know. I think, you know, you, you're either that way inclined where you want to want to push through and it's important to you as a person that you complete things or you get things done or you're not that kind of person in my view. Um, so I actually never saw it as a chore. I never saw it as, yeah, there were, there were times that were hard. There's no doubt about that. But, um, I, it, it was really interesting. I remember thinking on the selection course, you know, cause it's a, it's a crazy time when you're sleep deprived, food deprived, uh, rest deprived, everything deprived, uh, even positive feedback deprived. You guys know it all. Right. So I, I, th I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, how, how do you, how do you, how do you combat that? Right. So the way I, it's, it's almost mental hacks that help me through those situations. It's, I, I basically said, well, if I get anything more than a grain of rice, if I get five seconds sleep, if I actually get to stop for five seconds, it's a bonus, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm winning. Yeah. So, so, um, it's just a mental hack. And then, um, and, and I think I actually looked at my previous life experience before I did the selection course, the fact that I'd spent hours on my feet in a hospital, you know, because the hours were so long, you know, you, you miss weekends, you miss this, you miss that. And, uh, you know that life experience, and you know, to some, I was probably—I think I was probably the, the the oldest person on the selection course because I was a direct entry and because mm -hmm. of the role I was playing. Um, but I, I, I said, well, I'm the one with the most life experience. You know, I'm the one that's actually had the hardest run so far. So you know, bring it on. Um, you know, so I think there's there's mental hacks, and I don't know whether they're learned. I'm sure you can learn those, mm. or whether Sometimes you're just blessed with a personality or or maybe not blessed with a personality that allows you to do that sort of yeah. stuff. But, I mean, you can definitely, whether you can, you sort of learn them innately, but you can definitely practice them. Things like you've said, you know, that, yeah. that changing of uh, perspective or changing of framing, you know, like you said, well, you yeah. could look at it, gee, I'm the oldest person on this course, or you could look at it, gee, I've got the most life experience. And that idea of, yeah. you know, gee, I'm hungry versus, you know, well, yeah, anything more than a grain of rice. No one promised me any food. Anything more than a grain of rice is a bonus. I think a lot of those yeah. are actually tools that you can deliberately employ 
Um, notwithstanding the fact, I think, as you said, that some people develop these innately over their life as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if, if uh, you, I, the beauty of being part of the way through life is you start to reflect on how you get through these types of things. So I, I probably use some of those tools with my kids and I'm blessed with kids who have a positive attitude and really want to get on with things. And I'm sure some of those lessons I've learned um, I, I've passed on to them. But again, I look at I look back at my family's history and some of the stories I sort of presented at the beginning. And you think, well, you know, shoot, if that if dad can go from here to here when he's 14 with a bunch of cows, this this is a this is a walk in the park, right? Mm. So it's all perspective and relative. So whether you are lucky enough to be formally trained by people like yourselves in some of those tools, or whether you just seem to pick them up because of your life circumstance, um, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a mixture, but it's nice to it's nice to know that there are avenues to learn them if you if you think you need them these days. You know, um, business mentor training, life coach training, those life skills training. They're 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 things that were really never present in our day and age. Uh, growing up, you either did it or you didn't, mm-hmm. um, and you got it from your parents and the people around you. But I think there's a lot more research interest uh, of for people to. F- lead either fulfilling or successful which however you decide to 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 define it uh lives um so yeah i think there's a direct causative relationship between the decline in sending 14 year olds on cattle ship and the rise of the industry of of people that have to teach you those sort of life skills i think you know you're probably right you're probably right yeah i think um we generation on generation we all think our kids are soft you know um just never changes uh they've got too much given to them and you know i think that's just probably since time began i'd say that's been the case You finish your tenure in the SAS regiment as the doctor, but you're not a doctor in Australia. You have moved back to Africa. How did that happen? So, Tim, obviously, you know, after the SAS, as a doctor uh, in the military, my future looked pretty bleak. I have to tell you, because, <laughs> you know, I was going to end up, I was going to end up in an office in Canberra and, you know, no disrespect to my colleagues who are in offices in Canberra. It just wasn't for me. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, I'm, I congratulate all my colleagues who ended up doing extraordinarily well in their military careers in that scenario, but it wasn't for me. Um, and I, 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 I felt I was going to die, uh, emotionally if that was my set and of course as one of the senior sort of you know more prominent people in the in in my core at that stage that was going to happen I was going to be promoted into an administrative position so I started looking around and um, some contacts led me to to work in Papua New Guinea with in industry in oil and gas and mining and so I I had a, a I had some long service leave to do um, and I took it 
and went up there to have a look. And of course, it was fascinating for me to be in the highlands of New Guinea practicing medicine in an environment where there was incredibly good resources because of the industry there, but this incredible poverty and uh, lack of resources for the local people. And I found having done a master's in public health and tropical medicine through the military by that stage, that was really interesting conundrum for me. And so, and I love the, I love the idea of being in that environment and, and it seemed to me just a natural step. So on, on marching out of the unit and my military career, I found myself in New Guinea working a, a, a 28 day on 28 day off uh, roster uh, with um, an oil company in the Southern Highlands uh, outside of Mendy mm -hmm. and really, really enjoying that experience and learning a whole bunch of new things, uh, mainly working. I was work, I was working 12 hour shifts in a, in a very remote clinic, but spending a lot of time on HIV control, malaria control, and these crazy things that these Papua New Guinea villages do to themselves. So it was fascinating. But at that time, my wife and I had also decided to go to Tanzania on holiday to do some diving. A cousin of mine had a small remote rural clinic in the islands and um, sorry, uh, uh, ecotourism lodge in the island south of Zanzibar in the Mafia Island group. Um, and um, Mafia, interestingly enough, is the same spelling as the sort of Italian Mafia, but it actually <laughs> means, I think it's derived from Monfia, which means archipelago. So there's no connection whatsoever. <laughs> A beautiful set of remote islands, very underdeveloped. Uh, with an incredible marine resource. So we went there on a diving holiday, and, and while we were there, they clearly had a need for health resources on that island. The The local community of 800 were very remote and couldn't get access to the local district hospital. And my wife and her husband, my, my cousin and her husband, were looking for the funding to build a small community clinic to provide primary health care to that community. And that challenge just uh, hit me in the face. Um, so, you know, we, we they found the funding and my wife and I, pre-kids, decided that um, we would volunteer to build this clinic and teach the local community how to run their clinic. And we would do that for two years whilst I was still working in New Guinea. So... <laughs> So I had a I had a 28 day on 28 day off roster commuting between Papua New Guinea uh, and Tanzania on my own dime. So it was a it was the commute from hell. I was going yeah by helicopter out of the Highlands to Port Moresby, Moresby to Cairns, Cairns to Sydney, Sydney to Perth, overnighting shortly in Perth. And then it was Perth to Johannesburg, Johannesburg to Dar es Salaam, Dar es Salaam to the Mafia Islands, and back the following. So. So anyway, and in those days, there was no comms, right? So my wife, Jackie, man, she's a hero. She she was staying on the island, and we, were, we at that stage, managed to get some techie geek in Perth to set up a little libretto alarm top to a satellite phone, which was effectively our, the beginning of email in our world, right? Uh, Non-sort-of-mains non uh, email by satellite phone. Um yeah, the regiment would have been proud of me trying to get that set up. So, and so I was communicating with my wife by this uh, to her on the island when the month I wasn't there, 
and then the month I was earning to pay for it all year because we were volunteers. So that was that was our income stream. But what happened was very interesting. We worked there for two years. We we managed to train uh, unskilled, unqualified staff to run their own clinic, nursing staff, lab staff, um, administration staff, and the local doctors to run their own clinic on the island using minimal resources. And we absolutely stopped the maternal child uh, maternal morbidity through childbirth and uh, you know i'm very proud of the achievements of actually getting the clinic up and running still running today as it happens Um, but what it fundamentally did at the end of that two-year tenure we for whatever reason felt very uncomfortable about or not uncomfortable but just sad about coming back to australia Um, and that was never the intent you know we we were in we had houses on mortgage and cars on loans and all the other stuff that our society tends to do. And we couldn't understand why we were so uncomfortable about it. So we actually took a weekend off to go and do some self-examination, if you like, in Zanzibar, uh, which is a beautiful island off the coast of Tanzania, very romantic place, um, tropical island with beautiful beaches, and and did some self-examination. And I guess... The, the summary of all that was that we had our whole value system had changed. You know, we had lived on this island for nothing. You know, we were being brought fresh fruit and fresh seafood to our door by the local community. Um, other than the flight costs, traveling to New Guinea, which we had been paying off our, off our own back, we weren't being paid, but we had literally lived on about $1,000 for the year in a little, a little, uh, you know, seven by one, it was a tiny little room. We were, you know, we were catching rainwater, showering under rainwater, pit latrine toilet and a charcoal stove. Um, and we were as happy as we'd ever been. And I remember at the time, Sydney was having a cryptosporidium outbreak in their water supply. No one could shower, no water was going anywhere. And we were sitting in the middle of nowhere going, you know, what's all the fuss all about, basically? <laughs> so it, that fundamental value shift had a huge impact on our, fu- our direction again in that we decided to stay in Tanzania and try and try and make a, a life of it. We By then, we'd come to love the African people. I'd reconnected with my, you know, my my spiritual roots in, in, mm. in Africa. I didn't expect this to happen. You know, we were planning to our future in Australia. Um, we, we liquidated our assets in Australia. We went completely out of personal debt and came and settled in Tanzania full time. And so then the conundrum was, how do we how do we fund this? So I wrote to the to the group who I was working with in um, in New Guinea, uh, International SOS, which is a very big uh, medical service provider, emergency services provider. Um and suggested that, you know, there was a lot of opportunity in Eastern Africa within the burdening mining industry and industry as as that part of the world was opening up to foreign investment and that perhaps I could help them build that business if they were prepared to pay me this. And they agreed. So I wrote myself a job with International SOS, <laughs> which, <laughs> which paid my way in the first few years of living in Tanzania. Yep. Um, so I, I, it just as that happened, and a big international gold company, Barrick Gold out of Toronto, moved into Tanzania and started building, and I was put in charge of developing their health service, which was, an inc- again, another incredible challenge. So we built 
the health service for Barak, all their mines, all their exploration. And two years into that, the the global medical director asked me if I wanted to work for Barrett Global as their chief medical officer, which I decided to do. And, and so I was then moving all over the world, uh, you know, South America, Chile, Argentina, Canada, Pakistan, hmm. Baluchistan, yes, Zambia, South Africa, all over Australia, New Guinea, back to New Guinea with Barrett Gold being and why that was important. You know, it's a crazy story, but parallel to that, I had become very, very interested in the whole idea of poverty alleviation and uh, conservation through community engagement. Through and and that was sparked by two things. One is recognizing at that stage some inefficiencies within the nonprofit sector that I hadn't seen in the private sector when I was working with Barrett, with, with the mining industries. You know, they, they invest in communities over the longer term and irrespective of what people think about the extractive industries, because they're for profit, they are actually in those communities for the longer term. They take those risks and they invest in those communities because that's a license to operate. We'll put aside the environmental concerns and things that some people have. So for me, that, that, basically proved a model that needed to be explored if it can be done on a very very large scale with loads of money can it be done on a community scale with a small amount of money and engage a small community because if you can do it in one community you can then scale it to every community on the planet so that became the test tube if you like for our own community conservation programs where we would engage local communities uh, that had incredible natural resources, land, animals, trees, timber, that was being unsustainably exploited and enter agreements with them to protect it on their behalf, look for revenue generating streams to put back into those communities and to fund that conservation. So that's how we started our community conservation project, Kisampa, um, which became our family home in Tanzania. And to, you know, I was selling lemonade at the gate. I was still working for the mining companies mm -hmm. to fund that, to get it going. Because it's a bit of a risk. You can't really take partners in something so sort of uh, out of the ballpark. People don't want to risk their, their cash on something. Because I, I couldn't prove that it was going to work. I had no, you know, I was confident. Otherwise, wouldn't have barked on it. 20 years later, we're still there protecting that land um, and developing that community and rolling out new projects throughout Tanzania so right now we've got close to you know 12 20,000 acres under protection adjacent to national parks and things and you're trying to find ways to make this them financially sustainable yeah Rob could you talk about how um, real the problem of poaching is what's the magnitude what's the attraction um, how does the yeah. the trade transact uh, what's motivating these people to undertake the poaching? Yeah, great. Well, there's poaching and there's poaching, Tim. Um, so there's poaching when you're, if you think about this, in those traditional communities, there was always traditional um, artisans and they might be the blacksmith, they may be the farmer, or they could be the traditional hunter who's who's in charge of providing the protein for the village, right? And then all of a sudden somebody comes along and puts an arbitrary line on a map and declares it a protected area. And from one day you're the traditional hunter and the next day 
you're the poacher. Mm. So there's an enormous amount of status to being your village representative as an artisan. And we don't recognize this. You know, we didn't we didn't pay enough attention to this. So those traditional hunters uh, who became poachers are really just trying to provide food on the table for their family. So they're they're setting wire snares or using bows and arrows to catch perhaps a, a, an antelope or a bird in a wire snare. Horribly destructive process of uh, catching wildlife, it, hugely indiscriminate. So pretty much anything gets caught in it and um, on a large scale can be incredibly damaging. If you look at snaring on the western side of the Serengeti, they're catching hundreds of thousands of wildebeest every year in those snares. Well, I was working up there once with a friend and you find one little wildebeest in a snare and you let it go if it's still got the energy to keep going and you start looking around, we'd find 150 snares in the area. So on a sort of uh, market scale. Then there's then there's this sort of anti-poaching that relates to commercial gain for rhino horn, uh, elephant, ivory. That's a different kind of, that's organized crime on a different scale. It's usually funded by international syndicates outside of Africa who pay not very much to people who are poor in these local communities or do anything to get ahead to go and shoot an elephant, stab an elephant, kill a rhino, take its horn, ship it out through usually, I've got to be careful what I say, um, porous ports, uh, porous networks um, with sometimes high level involvement. You know, those things, that's a different level of poaching. Thankfully, where, where we're operating, we see much more of the latter, the community guy who's just needing to feed his family and is doing it for status. And we see less of the former, although we do have elephants in our area and we are starting to see more of that. Um, and so the way to, to approach that is to understand what their motivation is and give them alternatives. So when we first started that 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 community uh, program, the first guy I, I actually employed was was the poacher, the guy that we knew that was poaching the most. So we employed him as our, our chief anti-poaching guy, and then he enrolled all his guys because he 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 was a, a walking GPS. He knew every tree in that place. He knew exactly what was going on, and he knew who was who in the zoo. So at least we had him close to us, and we could keep an eye on him, uh, and we gave him status. Um, so, and that's a common, that's a common trend in a lot of, uh, conservation activities these days. Is it scalable, that sort of idea, Rob? I know you're, you're talking at sort of grassroots. Um, I, I remember at one stage in the, the whole Afghanistan campaign, there was talk of, um, trying to displace opium growing by almonds and, um, pomegranate. yeah, pomegranates and, you know, the, the idea was, well, you can get $2 a kilo for, for almonds and, and, you know, opium was going for $2,000 a kilo. It just wasn't a, a, a logical, um, I guess, economic driver for, for the really impoverished people who are falling victim to, to some of these international syndicates. Is it the same? I mean, uh, the, could you scale that kind of thing? Is there enough sort of legitimate work and legitimate uh, attractive status opportunities to, to offset significantly those kind of big scale operations? 
I'd like to believe so, Ben. Otherwise, I wouldn't be trying it, right? Yeah. Uh, so, I, I think there are there are definitely, um, you know, every African community, every community on the planet is slightly different. So their conditions are slightly different. Um, so there's no there's no template mm -hmm. that fits everything, and you have to understand what their motivations are, what resources they have what what the what their market potentially is and fit a fit a model that fits that specific unique situation yeah but there are a couple of un under and I, i've only figured this out in the last few years when i've reflected on why we're still going and we haven't caved and what made that what made that a success and there was a couple of things one is from our perspective as engaging those communities is uh under promise and over deliver is one um, so you know, be very, very modest in what you think you can offer them, or you, or you, or the expectation gets out of hand. Yeah. Be completely transparent with what you do, and this this one is critical. The trust that you develop with that particular community is absolutely critical to success. So, what I mean by that is, explain exactly what you're doing, engage them at every step of the way, empower them to make some of those decisions. If it's going off track, reach out to them really quickly and explain why you think that's happening and what you're going to do to fix it and give them open access to any of the documents that you're using and seeing and get mm. them involved. Mm. Um, so, you know, it takes a long time to build trust. And these these projects are lifelong. You know, you're not we're, we're in here forever. That's the mission. It's not it's not a it's not a business model where if it starts to. Uh, be unsuccessful that you walk away yeah. so you have to have a long view um, so you have to be nimble on your feet uh, so those are the two critical success yeah. factors in my uh, and if you apply those to any project and then of course you need clever people to figure out how best to utilize the resources how best to capacity build a community to be able to manage their own resources what's in it for them how do you see value for them in this otherwise they're never going to change their ways yeah, those things are incredibly important, but they're they're all very community specific. Yeah, and when you touched on that, it reminded me of a question I wanted to ask earlier. As you were forming these ideas, you were bouncing between the PNG Highlands and Tanzania. I'm really interested yeah. in in what sort of similarities you saw in terms of some of the social problems, poverty and crime, and and these sorts of things, but also the nuanced differences between those those two different parts of the world. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I found it fascinating, the, the, the contrast, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, we, all, all, any, any community that is impoverished suffers from uh, poor, poor health outcomes, uh, poor ability to manage their own resources, so they become desperate and therefore they exploit resources without the thought of the future, right? Um, and so uh, that that's common across any impoverished community. Um, and the really the only way out of that is is twofold. One is I use the word loosely education. It's more skills and knowledge, right? I'm not talking about a formal school education. Mm. I don't necessarily think that's the most important thing. But let's call it to use a sort of uh, development term, which I don't like very much, capacity building. Sure. Um, if you give people 
if you people give people skill sets that allows them to make good choices and you're able to get to a stage where someone has security of income because unfortunately in the old days income was not important the ability to f grow food uh, and have people help you grow food was most important that's why people had lots of kids in case some of them didn't make it if you have security of income people's choices change and they can plan for the future so the biggest issue for us once and it was it was incredible it happened almost overnight when we were able to pay our guys and gals salaries even if it was very modest and they had security of that income over a number of weeks to months to years they made really good choices about health care for their kids lifestyle um you know they make good choices yeah um and so that's really the crux in this day and age because unfortunately there's very few communities now that are not in a monetary environment so security of income and it doesn't have to be much it just needs to be there every week yeah uh makes a huge difference they're not living day to day they're not making choices because they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and that's fundamentally alters the way we all think about life. Yeah. Having been at um, Tanzania, it's a captivating place and probably globally made famous by the safaris and in particular the migration. Yeah. Could you explain the migration and how people could be involved and whether you think it's a good, bad or indifferent thing? Yeah, great. So how I how did I get into this? So um I I was merrily work, working away on my conservancy type businesses and you know working for Barrack trying to feed the beast and um, an ex colleague of mine from the infantry battalion two four a gentleman called Brad Horn who I'm sure you guys are mm. potentially familiar with as an infantry officer um, he and I were very good friends going through our military careers he left the army a little bit earlier than me and did an, an MBA in hospitality and tourism. And had independently moved to Botswana with his wife uh, to work in in the safari industry in the in the camps in the Okavango Delta. He actually set up Abercrombie and Kent's operations in Botswana, but when Abercrombie and Kent, which is a very famous safari, uh, probably was the was the um, catalyst for the luxury safari type scene uh, around the world, most people have heard of A and K Abercrombie and Kent. Anyway, they went. They were bought by. Uh, financial investors and went probably a little bit more mainstream in volume. So Brad saw the opportunity for a small, bespoke, personalized service behind that and incorporated Epic Private Journeys, which is the company that we we work together in to, to give people experiences. He sent some people to Kilimanjaro to climb and it didn't go well, sadly. Um, so he, and this is where I talk about my military background being incredibly useful um he called me and said look would you mind climbing with these clients uh up Kili? and of course you know you you spend eight nine days on the mountain you get to know people very well and mm. inevitably at the end of that, their first question is well where, what should we do next and would you come with us so yeah after a number of these sort of instances brad says man you need to come into the business so i became a partner in epic um and so we offer people we hope uh, extraordinary experiences around wilderness and wildlife uh, around the world now, mostly in Africa, but you know India and Nepal, um, Patagonia, Antarctica. In fact, I'm off to 
to trek with to look for snow leopards in two weeks with some clients wow. up in the Himalayas in Ladakh. So, um, so safari that that whole safari. I, I look at it from two perspectives. You know, people have seen the Out of Africa movie or they've seen uh, The Lion King and they're coming at it from that perspective. Um, and it is extraordinary. I mean, the, the migration, Tim, as you're asking, is one of the world's iconic wildlife experiences. You have upwards of two million wildebeest moving around a grassland ecosystem dropping half a million babies right now on the southern Serengeti Plains, which is obviously a huge attraction for predators, lions, cheetahs, leopards, jackals, hyenas. It's an incredible spectacle. Um, and it's happening in the cradle of mankind where all of us began. And it's really interesting. People have this, they, they don't understand it, but once they hit, the African continent, they have this feeling of coming home. It's a very hard thing for people to understand. Um, and in that environment, it's kind of how we were 15,000, 10,000 years ago. So you see yourself back in history to a large extent. I think that's the that's that's the attraction of it. Um, and so it's a huge industry. Uh, people from all over the world these days want to spend places in wilderness in with wildlife and and big mega megafauna big fluffy critters um because it's not their normal experience where they come from whether they're in singapore or london or new york or sydney um so it's it's a unique travel experience and and it's something most people will probably want to do um at least once in their lives and i would argue most people who do it once end up doing it more than once because it's such an interesting activity it's just unfortunate for the australian your australian views it's just an expensive undertaking from australia mm -hmm. it's such a long way uh you know the australian dollar doesn't compare well to the us dollar which the the industry tends to be uh, traded in um so it's and of course australians are very used to going into Southeast Asia, which by by comparison is incredibly well priced. So it's a tough sell for us to get people to come from Australia. Mm. But if you look at the rest of the world, Europe, America, it's an incredibly popular activity, um, so romanticized by movies uh, in the past. Um, and and so, yeah, we, there's 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 a lot of uh, a lot of people coming. And for us, we then leverage that interest to tell people about the challenges that Africans face and the African continent faces and, and to be honest, what the planet faces. Mm. And so we show them that and explain the challenges that we have to maintain that um, and hope that that introduction allows people to think twice about the way they live their lives or in some way contribute uh, to, 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 uh, to making it better. Mm. Two more questions from me. The first one, if you could recommend a piece of prose or poetry what would you recommend oh, people gosh. read? Gosh, uh, you really put me on the spot, Tim. <laughs> Poetry's not my thing. Um, uh, a book, a manuscript, you know, I'm, I'm a, gonna, a poem, a quote, anything. Um, the, well, actually, actually, I can, rec I can recommend something that, you know, the, the, the first president of Tanzania, um, President Julius Nyerere, who's considered the father of the nation, um, 
he was he was an incredibly intelligent guy and he wrote the Arusha Manifest, um, which is a document that stipulates the importance of wildlife and wildlife habitat to humanity. And it was an inspired piece of writing. Um, so that that's one document that I'm, I, you know, I think is really important. Don't ask me to quote it. I know that's coming next because <laughs> um, it's a it's a bit of a long document. But that document is inspiring, certainly for us who are working in the industry and are butting heads against challenges every single day. Um, it's an important one. Um, I'll reflect on that and I'll I'll send something to you. Maybe as a as an extension to that, when you were talking about movies before, people often ask, you know, is is there a great war movie or is it there a, a movie that sort of captures the experience? I'm I'm interested in your reflections on Africa. Have you seen anything on the silver screen that that really resonates and and sort of captures an Africa moment? There's some great books. Um, yeah, the, there's some contemporary books, and obviously mm-hmm. there's some fantastic contemporary African uh, authors and and filmmakers now. Um, you know, the it, it in some ways it's unfortunate, but it's it's a it's a mixed blessing. Literally, the out of Africa film lit up Africa in the world's uh, in the world's eye, mm. um, and you know. It's a very romanticized view of Africa, but it brings people to Africa, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Um, but it's not the Africa of the present. The Africa of the present, unfortunately, we see it in the news of you know, people with malnutrition and AK-47s and a constant insecurity threat. I, that's not the Africa that I see. I see a vibrant continent that is incredibly optimistic respectful of society, respectful of community, um, respectful of people visiting, go ahead, entrepreneurial, using their initiative. There's no welfare in Africa. People get on with it. They Mm. just have to or they die. Mm. So, you know, I don't know if people know, but Nairobi in Kenya, the capital of Kenya, is the hub of mobile money. It developed in Nairobi. Yeah. Uh, you sending money through your your phone account that started in Nairobi. Mm. Uh, it's an incredible IT hub and solving problems and and uh, and ideas around IT for remote remote rural communities. So it's pretty vibrant. Mm. Um, unfortunately, there's no movies around that at this stage. <laughs> uh, so we rely on the old traditional model to just hook people's attention until we can see see things. By the way. If anybody, if 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 anybody's interested, my wife did write a book about that period we were in the Maffrey Islands. It's called uh, "Where Spirits Fly" by Jackie Barber. Three ninety nine on any of the e ebook platforms. So fill your boots, and it all goes to that that particular charity. That's great. Definitely we'll, link to that, and Tim will be googling the manifesto as well, and and seeing what we can find there to link to. A lot of adversity in your career from medical officer through special forces into New Guinea and now the work in Africa. Any personal practices that you would never um, not practice, anything that you do religiously? Um, Yeah, look, it's an interesting life. You know, I'm the kind of person that doesn't make five-year plans, 10-year plans. You know, that's not the way I operate. 
and maybe that's wrong, but it's just not the way I think. I, I come to a fork in the road, I look at the fork and I choose the one that looks the best and I go down that track. So um, I don't know what I'll be doing in five, 10 years time. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the most important thing is, I think just being as true to yourself as you possibly can. Um, you know, we, as we get older, we understand who we are and what we like and what drives us and what fulfills us. Um, and understanding yourself mm. and then working with what you have in that toolkit to make the best of it, I think is really, really important. Um, and then not, not really giving uh, too much credence to what anybody else thinks of you. Um, I think, you know, we all have to you have to make your own way in this world, this this amazing experience we get for a very short period mm. of the overall time that uh, uh, life is going to be around. Um, and, you know, it really is not important what other people think of you. It's more important what you think of yourself. I, You know, if, if you're guided by that, everything else will fall into place, I think. I love how you you described that idea of you know be true to yourself, but you made that very deliberate caveat. Spend time to understand who yourself is, you know. And I think that's a really important thing, and it links into that idea of not caring about other people and and reflecting on what's important to you and and living by that standard. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah. that's a really positive um, sort of. I think that advice. Ben, I think that's the problem is a lot of people haven't really figured out who they are, right? Yeah. Um, I don't. I can't pretend to explain to people how they should do that. Uh, a lot of people look at it through faith. They look at it through experience. Doesn't matter. Mm. But you've got to get there sometime. Um, it took me a long time. I think I, you know, and maybe all of these experiences were on that journey to finding that person. Uh, certainly, uh, all of those experiences helped me understand who I am. Um, I'm starting to get better at that. So. Yeah. Uh, I'm, it's funny, you just become a whole lot more comfortable in your own skin as you get older. I remember yeah. it, I went to a 40-year school reunion while I was in Perth last February, which was fascinating because I remember, you know, it was, it was actually a really rewarding event because everybody was just who they were. You know, they were all very relaxed. Everybody had had their life traumas, whether it was financial failure, relationship mm. failure, health failure. Everybody had been through that. And, you know, for the vast majority, some sadly not, had come through and were progressing with their lives. And, you know, I remember it, you, obviously as a young man, you want to you want to slaughter the world. You want to be king of the world, you know. Um, and then you, as time progresses, by my stage, I'm done with conquering the world. <laughs> I'm barely, I'm barely good at conquering myself every morning. So, so it's uh, your your whole outlook on life changes as you mature, I guess. Yeah. And and that's such a fun thing about growing older is that is a different perspective on on your previous life. I'd, I'd agree. Um, Rob, we're going to put you on the spot for our last question. We often ask our guests if they have a power song. Do you have a certain song that never fails to to fire you up or get you going that extra yard in the gym or on the running track or in life in general? Is there something that resonates with you? I have plenty of power songs. I'm not sure <laughs> I'm going to you – know, they're, they're, they're totally personal. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, it depends on the situation, Ben. Um, 
but plenty of power songs a lot of things resonate i love music i you know i learned my i built myself a guitar and i'm trying to teach myself how to play the damn thing awesome. so there's a lot of songs in here somewhere ready to burst out <laughs> when i record one i'll send it to you that sounds good well that can go straight that can be your contribution to the the unforgiving 60 playlist your first single that's great yeah channel <laughs> your inner eric clapton or something <laughs> Hey, Rob, thank you so much for spending the time with us on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. It's been awesome to see your face and hear your voice uh, and understand what you've been up to for the last few years. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. I've really enjoyed seeing you guys again. Uh, brings back fond memories, Tim. Ben, we never met, but um, uh, I'd love to catch up sometime for a beer or a coffee in Perth or wherever you are. Me too. Me Ho- too. Hopefully in Tanzania, yeah. watching some migrating you're very welcome anytime anybody anybody out there who's listening uh very happy to help in any way even just advice thanks rob first time i left my home through the darkest tunnels i will roam if i lose my way or i can cope i leave my largest fears behind Swim through this world of ice But I, I won't give up my I won't, I won't give up my hope You can find out more about the topics of resilience, stress and how to optimise your life in the Resilience Shield Reach out via the website at www.resilienceshield.com or do yourself a favour and just buy a copy of the book.
enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and rate us on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media. Just search for Unforgiving 60 on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube. Until next time, we wish you luck in filling your Unforgiving 60s with some quality distance run. I won't, I won't give up my...